Merry Christmas, everyone. We are actually in this Advent season. Advent is a Latin word that basically uh, connotes longing or waiting for an arrival. And of course, for us in the Christian tradition, we believe that Jesus was actually someone who came in the flesh, God in the flesh, to actually meet us, to come to, so that we might experience God in the flesh, as opposed to many of the different rumors about who God is, that we could actually see a live proof in Jesus who God is. Uh, now, some of you, as Catherine was reading this passage, many of you were thinking, how in the world are we going to preach this passage here? Uh, there's just a bunch of names here. Now, I think that actually sets the scene for kind of this sermon series called The Unexpected Messiah, because this genealogy back in those days, especially in an oral culture in the ancient world, uh, the names of people meant a whole lot, and the reason why was because that's how traditions were passed on. And so genealogy, there was so much that was packed into a name, especially a family name. So you could imagine when people hear the names of genealogies, people would lean in. Now, again, in today's world, that's so global and diversified, and there's something called Google. Um, many of us, perhaps, when it comes to information uh, and kind of what we learn from genealogies, we can just Google these names. But if you could imagine in the ancient world, the names and the histories associated with families meant so much that whenever someone would actually hear the name of a family, they would lean in because that story, the story of this family meant so much. And they would tell so much about a family. Now, here's what's so interesting, right? Because this is Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, which is a historical account of the person of Jesus. So these are real names of people that lived, and Matthew is actually listing them out. Now, keep in mind, though, Matthew starts what we call in the Christian tradition the New Testament. Now, before that, there's been thousands of years of writings of scriptures that were written called the Hebrew scriptures that the people of Israel, all the way from back in creation in the book of Genesis, people have been reflecting on and, and thinking about who God is and how God reveals himself to his people. And the people of Israel would be a people that would reflect on who this God would be and how God would reveal himself to the world around us, not only to the people of Israel, but to the world around us. Now, if you know anything about the history of the people of Israel, they were people that were consistently oppressed. They were marginalized frequently, whether it was in slavery in Egypt, whether it was captivity uh, from Assyria or in Babylon or in exile, what we find is that throughout the history of Israel, it would be a people who are longing for God to show up and to deliver them. So for the people of Israel then, here's the prophecies that would come about the nation of Israel and the way that God would appear. The, the idea was that God would send a Messiah, an anointed one, that God would send someone that would deliver and rescue a people that have been consistently oppressed marginalized and abused. So if you could imagine that God was always a God who was a champion for the weak, the poor, and the marginalized. And oftentimes the people of Israel found themselves in that place. Well, fast forward, there's been almost 400 years then since the last book of the Old Testament was written, the book of Malachi. There's almost been like these 400 years of, uh, let's call it silence, where there's this longing that God would deliver them. During that time of 400 years, there's the rise and fall of different empires, and Rome would emerge, the Roman Empire would emerge as the world power in that moment. Okay, so now Rome is, is ruling everything, conquering. The people of Israel are basically this small little kind of vassal state that is marginalized. They're enslaved in some ways, they're oppressed in other ways, but in many, it's because Rome is the world power during that moment. So if you could imagine, the psyche of the people of Israel, they know that their history is marked by consistently being marginalized, longing and hoping that God would come and reveal himself and that a Messiah would come, someone that would save them from their plight. 
from this moment of suffering. They've just been striving and yearning for God. And there's been years of silence. Now, check out how the Gospel of Matthew begins. Now, you'll notice these are going to be Greek words that are kind of written up here. However, I'm sure you can get a sense of some of these Greek words. Here are the words that are used. It's biblos. Can I hear you say biblos? What, what word does biblos sound like or look like? Bible. Yeah, biblos actually in Greek, uh, biblos actually means book or record. So the book, and look, there's this word, geneseos. Everyone say geneseos. Geneseos. Yeah, what word does Geneseo sound like or look like to you? Anyone? Genesis? Yeah. So it's like the book of Genesis, and then there's a name. And look at the name. It says Iesu Christu. Iesu, that's Jesus. And Christ was the Greek word for Messiah or the anointed one. So here's basically what Matthew's doing. I want you to get this sense then, right? Because there's this longing that's happening, right? Because the people of Israel, they're longing for a deliverer for this Christ this Messiah that's going to come. Yes, Christ is not Jesus' last name. <laughs> Some people might think that, but no, it actually refers to the anointed one, the one that the people of Israel have been longing for that would deliver them finally. So the book of Genesis of Yesu Christu. Can you imagine if you're someone who, after 400 years of silence, you've been leaning in, longing for God to deliver his people, and you've been wondering, and the first words that are used our Biblos, the book of Genesis. Oh my goodness, something's about to go down. The book of Genesis, the book of new beginnings, the book of a new creation. Something is about to go down of Iesu Christu, of Jesus, who is the Messiah. So immediately the listener leans in, hears these words, and is thinking, wow, is this the moment? where the collective longing from the ways that we've been oppressed, the, the ways that we've been marginalized, the ways that we've been longing for God to deliver us, to show up somehow, is, is, is this the moment that comes? And of course, then we get into the genealogy of Jesus, the story of the family, the lineage of the one who's gonna deliver the people of Israel. All of our hopes, our longings, our dreams rest in this genealogy, in this person. Let's check out what his family is like. And look at what happens. Uh, it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham and David are in many ways people, whether you're a Christian or you're not, you've probably heard those names before. And look at what it says, though. It goes on. It starts with Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, I, I underline that because there's something unique about what happens in this genealogy. Then it goes on, and it says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. I underline that name as well. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, underlined again. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, these four names of people that I underlined, I underlined them for a very specific reason. Uh, you see, these names, first there's Tamar, then there's R Ruth, then there's Rahab, and then there's Uriah's wife. Now, in many ways, this is an unexpected kind of way of looking at the family of Jesus. The unexpected, because remember, the story of a genealogy told so much about the story of someone. Now, here's two ways in which this genealogy, and specifically these four names, are entirely unexpected, especially for the ancient world. 
First, the four that are listed here are women. Uh, in the ancient Near East and in ancient cultures, and even today, women are often demeaned and oppressed. And what's interesting is back then, genealogies often didn't include the names of women. Why? Because it was seen through a man's line. And yet here, what's so unexpected is that in the story, now keep this in mind, people are leaning in, they're longing to hear what's the family history of this chosen one, this Messiah who's going to deliver us. And there's these four women that are prominent here in this story. In fact, Matthew goes out of his way to list them here. That's number one. The second is each of these women have some sort of tie to Gentile origins. So and when I mean Gentile origins, I'm talking about non-Jewish origins. Now, in many ways today, ethnocentrism is very prominent. I know in the family that I came from, ethnocentrism, obviously the World Cup probably perpetuates, I'm just kidding. Uh, I'll go South Korea, by the way. Uh, we made it to the round of 16. Um, like, ethnocentrism was a big part of the ancient culture. And so having your family be like a pure family line, especially uh, ethnically, was super important back then. And so in genealogies, you would kind of see and trace the lines of someone who was part of the same uh, ethnic group. And so what's interesting also about these four stories is it's a story of different women, whether it's from Canaanite origin or from Moabite origin there's, or Hittite. There are these different stories in which these women are not purely from the line of Israel. They're not Jewish. And so that's surprising as well, because again, here's what's happening, right? Matthew is presenting the best possible way to show you, hey, let me legitimize the story of the Messiah the, so that you can believe that the way that God is going to deliver you, I want you to know that this is, the, this is the stock. This is the story that Jesus comes from. And what's so unexpected is there's these women who also have these Gentile ties. Uh, because back then, if you were to be the king of the Jews or the king of a people group, you'd want it to be pristine or look a certain way. I, I know that for my family of origin, uh, there was a time where my oldest brother, he was kind of like the black sheep in the family. And my, my, I grew up in an immigrant family here in the States. And my, my dad was um, someone who put a lot of pressure on us to perform well in school. And if we didn't perform well in school, then we didn't bear kind of the Hyun family name well. My, my oldest brother, he was someone that kind of rebelled against that, you know, didn't, uh, missed a lot of school because in many ways it just wasn't that important to him. Meanwhile, I was the youngest, so I was dutiful. And, uh, but I had a twin brother as well, the three of us. There was a time in, in our family's history when as adults my dad actually disowned my, my, my oldest brother. Um, he would later disown me at times later as well. If you've heard some of my family history, we're all good now, by the way. Everyone, usually when they hear about my story, they want to know, like, hey, is everything okay now with your family? Yes, everything's great now, uh, or as good as it can be. But back then, I remember they, like, you know, this was during a time when my, my brother, he, my oldest brother, didn't go to college, which was like a big no-no for our family that valued education so much. And so I noticed that when my dad would be, uh, he'd be presenting or telling other people about the family, he would often talk about how he had three boys, and he wouldn't mention my oldest brother. And he would, he would rave about these three boys. And I just remember being so confused by it. Like, wait a minute, like, you're totally erasing my, my oldest brother's kind of 
story, his own family from the record books. And I realize now looking back, of course, and especially in East Asian cultures, so much of it is based on the public kind of, the public image of who people are. And, and so the, and in private, we can have a very different reality than what's, what's demonstrated in public. And I realized that my dad carried so much shame around my oldest brother that, of course, what he wanted to show was like how his family, my dad's family, was, was perfect and pristine. And we could put this gleaming image of who our family was. And yet he would erase the story of my oldest brother, who at the time was struggling through life and kind of figuring things out. I, I mean, while I might say like, oh, you see that public-private dynamic, it's, it's really relegated to East Asian cultures. The reality is I've seen that as we've worked with the family histories of people from all over the world, especially in a cosmopolitan city like New York. There's so many cultures that also wrestle with that idea of shame. And when it comes down to actually putting our best foot forward, especially when it comes to our families of origin, we want everyone to know the best parts of our family, don't we? And you would expect, even in this story, especially as Matthew's trying to make the case for, hey, this is what the Messiah is like, you would expect that this is what Matthew tries to do, but it's so unexpected. You see, Matthew's putting forward this story that isn't necessarily in that time and era a convincing way to say this is who Jesus is. Instead, it's wholly unexpected, but it's not only unexpected, it's also the imperfect family of Jesus. Uh, now, why is it imperfect? What's really interesting, uh, not only about these four women, but also the story that's, that's replete throughout every single name and the story of people throughout scriptures. There's this belief somehow, especially in church settings, that the way that you, like, that God is only pleased with you if you're a good person, if you're dutiful, if you've done all the right things. And here is what's so stunning about these stories of these four women but it's also the story of all of these different people throughout the scriptures. The story of Tamar is in many ways a scandalous story, and I'll just go over it really quickly. It's, Tamar was someone who was married to Judah's first son. And Judah's first son, Ur, ends up committing a heinous sin and ends up dying as a result of it. So Tamar is Judah's daughter-in-law. Now, in that kind of custom, what happened was she was to, uh, to continue the oldest brother's line by marrying the next son. So the second son, and this is all found in Genesis 38. The next son, Tamar actually marries him. This man is also incredibly unscrupulous, and that man dies as well. So now Tamar is now given, is about to, well, kind of the just thing to do was for Tamar to marry the third son. However, Judah starts to believe that, oh, no, 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 you're not going to marry my third son. Because, see, the common denominator with all that's happened with my first son and my second son is you. So what ends up happening is that he says to Tamar, he, with no intention of giving uh, Tamar to his youngest, he basically says, no, you're going to be relegated. I, you know what, let's wait till uh, he gets of age with no intention to have her married. Now, what Tamar does is she ends up, one night, she ends up dressing as a prostitute, and she ends up sleeping with Judah, and then she gets impregnated by him. And now, all of a sudden, Tamar, later, it's, it's revealed that Tamar is pregnant. Judah is up in arms. This daughter-in-law, how dare you do this? And Tamar basically says, the, the person who's the father of this child that grows within me is the one who owns this ring and this staff, and it's Judah. And Judah 
who is completely ashamed and he actually gives this public confession and he says, you have been more righteous than I have. And he actually confesses. Now, you could imagine, this is a scandalous story. Like, what? Like, the story of Tamar, when someone heard this story, it's immediately like, that's kind of a, it's a risque story. It's a story of family betrayal. It's a story of shame and honor. It's a story of the subjugation of women. It's a story, and yet this woman taking power into her own hands. Like, it's kind of a shameful story. Now, moreover, if we go to the slide with the list of the names, the story of Rahab, she was known as a prostitute who would help deliver the people of Israel in Jericho. So Rahab is this prostitute. There's a story of Ruth, who's a Moabite, who's this foreigner, who loves and is devoted in this incredible way to Boaz uh, and to Naomi. And then there's the mention of someone who is... Uriah's wife, who we would later know, and if you're someone who's not familiar with the biblical text, Uriah's wife, her name is Bathsheba. Now, why is Bathsheba's name not used here? Instead, it says the wife of Uriah. Why? Because King David, one of the most venerated people in the story of Israel, of all the names to list there, it's mentioned that he also committed adultery with the wife of Uriah. It's almost like his imperfection, David's imperfection, Bathsheba's vulnerability is emphasized to plaster in this genealogy for the whole world to see. Now that is absolutely stunning. Because like I said, most of us, when it comes to the ways that we portray our family or the family history or the loyalties that we have to our family, we want to present the best possible sides. We want to present everything to be pristine and to look neat and to legitimize us as being who we are, at least to honor the family. And yet here in the genealogy of Jesus, they're so unexpected. It's these Gentile women. Moreover, it's these stories of scandal and adultery and of brokenness and imperfection. And the question is, why, why in the story of Jesus, in this Biblos Genesios Iesu Christu, why would these scandalous stories be embedded in the genealogy? Why? It's because we're all welcome in the family of Jesus. We're all welcome in the family of Jesus. The way that this genealogy legitimizes the person of Jesus, it's the raw and honest truth of the journey of human beings who have been marred and broken by life, who have sinned against others, sinned against themselves, and sinned against God. And the most explosive way, this book of new beginnings, is a way of demonstrating the heart of who God is. That the heart of God and the family of God is welcome to everyone. No matter your background, no matter your ethnic origin, no matter your gender, we're all welcome in the family of God. You know, I, I think there's this way that 
and even if you've been a Christian for a while or if you've come from a religious background, there's a way that when we think about religion and especially about God, we think of there, there being these tears of how God sees us, you know? Like, oh, this person grew up going to church. That person, like, let's, we're just going to elevate that person one tier, you know? Or, you know, this person, yeah, that person really goes to church every single Sunday and has done so since the age of five. That, that person, let's, let's just elevate that person a little bit more. You know what, this person comes from a family background, from a family background, just like so stately and honorable. Like, yes, God can use those people. I mean, don't we do this sometimes? And whether we do it consciously, some of us do it subconsciously. When we perceive other people and we think about the stories of other people, like, oh my goodness, God can't, can only use a certain type of person. This person just, like, doesn't know anything about the Bible? No, 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 I can't, I can't use someone like that. This person came from, like, a poor background? No, 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 no that, that doesn't, doesn't belong here. I mean, this is what we think about who God is. We think that God has these tears of who he favors and who he doesn't. We think that God somehow, that this is what he does. He, he examines each of us. This person isn't pretty enough. This person isn't smart enough. You know who God can really use? It's the person that went to an Ivy League school and works in finance. That's who God can use. And what's interesting is that some of us are like, no, no, that's who God can't use. <laughs> I mean, there's all these different ways that we, we think of God as a God who's ranking other people. And what's so explosive and so beautiful about this family of, of Jesus, it's a way of saying all are welcome to the family of Jesus. That no matter where you've come from, no matter what your background, no matter your age, no matter how much you've been living a clean life up until this point, that if you want, if you're willing to say, yes, I want to be part of this family, guess what? You are welcome here. That's one of the most beautifully inclusive messages that the world has ever known. Because again, most religions will tell you this is what you need to do. You need to give this certain amount of money. You need to be this kind of amount of like dressed up and pristine and in the story of God, and this is the message of the Christian gospel. The message of the Christian good news is this, is that Jesus has come into the world to show you that your place before God is not based on your performance, your background, how great you are. It's based solely on the grace and the love of God. And when each one of us can actually, all it takes, all it takes is not for you to pay more tithes, to do more. It'd be great if you did that. But no, it's not based on any of that. You know what it's based on? It's based on grace. God's love for you that he would demonstrate for you that despite whatever station in life, despite all the stories that you've told yourself about how you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you're not beautiful enough, you're not strong enough, what the Christian good news does is it silences all those messages that says you are welcome to the family because it's not based on your performance. It's based on the pure beauty and love of God. And all are welcome to this family. 
And that's why the Christian church can be this incredible display of the wonder of God's love in all of its richness and diversity. What's amazing is that, again, there's all these ways we tell ourselves that we're not good enough, that we, like, before God, and yet God says, no, 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 all are welcome here. All the stories, perhaps, that you tell yourself about how God doesn't approve of you, doesn't love you, well, guess what? Welcome to the family. (laughs) Because none of us on our own merit have what it takes Instead, all of us, with all of our imperfections, all of our messed up family histories, all of the ways that we don't measure up, when we put our trust in Jesus, and this is why he came to live and die on our behalf. Why would God do that? To show us this word grace, the love of God that welcomes all of us, so that all of us are welcome in the family of God.